morning, everyone. Thanks for being in church today. It's a great thing to hear the people of God sing the praises of God and to sit in awe and wonder and the glory of what it is to be His. Trust that you've been encouraged by that already. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, but if you have a Bible, I'd like you to start in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you would, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a Bible in a chair nearby you, in a chair somewhere behind and front around you. If you're using one of those Bibles, page 1014 is 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read for you 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, which was brought up last week in this service. At at least twice, Tom read it. My dad preached on it. And so I, I want to bring this passage to you again to note something that will help lead into our passage from today in Philippians chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When we read through those few verses right there, it is abundantly clear that the work of your justification is not your work, right? Who is it that caused us to be born again? It was not my effort or my intellect or my ability. It was God who caused us to be born again. And then once that being born again has happened, who is it that keeps and guards that new life? Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled, unfading, kept in heaven, not by you, for you. It is God who is keeping it. And then verse 5, and guarding your faith through salvation. When we begin the process of considering how we are made right with God, we have to recognize, understand, that it is not on our doing. That it is on the back of the work of Christ that our righteous standing before the Almighty God is earned and preserved. The work of our salvation is the work of Christ. We are justified by Christ, or perhaps in other words, we are coattail riders. We didn't do any of it, right? We found someone else who was doing great things, and we jumped on the bandwagon, said, you just go ahead and take us all the way there. We are justification coattail riders. And there is typically little disagreement on this point within Christian circles. Most 
Christian denominations will acknowledge that salvation is a work of God. We may come at that with slightly different angles, but typically this is a pretty uh, standard Christian idea. It is not on the back of your ability or righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness that brings our justified state before God. However, for some reason, when we push to move past the point of justification in our story of being made right with God, we tend to think God has done his part and I will take it from here. That for some reason, thank you, Jesus, for giving me your righteousness and saving me. I got it from here on out. Really appreciate what you did for me at the cross, but from here on, uh, let me show you what I can do. And our text this morning in Philippians 2 is going to push into our consciousness, if we have not had it there already, the realization that while our justification is one on the coattails of Christ, so is our sanctification. That it is not just a moment that we are saved and redeemed, that we can point to the work of Christ and say, look what Christ did for me. It is an ongoing thing that we as Christians in our desire and pursuit to grow in holiness say, this is a work of God still. Not just at another point back in some yesteryear time where I would give a testimony and say, this is when God saved me. The New Testament is going to talk about your salvation and all the tenses. It is past, it is present, and it is future. It is always the work of God beginning to end that brings about your justification and your sanctification. So if we were to try to summarize that and put a, a proposition to this sermon, we will find that Christians are called to live humble, holy lives and we are empowered by God in that pursuit. If you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 2. Flip a little bit to your left if you are in 1 Peter. Philippians chapter 2, this morning our text is verses 12 and 13. If you would, go ahead and stand together as we read the Word of God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we ask this morning that what we have not, you would give us. That what we know not, you would teach us. And what we are not, you would make us. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So we spent three weeks detailing out the glories of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and rightfully so. It is this, this grand hymn, a, a Christological insertion into the midst of a, a series of commands by the Apostle Paul. If you remember, you are to not do anything out of selfish ambition, 
verse 3, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves in this verse 4. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And then we turn to this mind of Christ that you are to mirror, and that is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And you have these soaring heights of Christology, and you go, how are you going to follow that up? And Paul's answer is, I'm going to return right back to where I was before I started that little addendum. I'm going to remind you exactly what the mind of Christ is supposed to be developing in your life. And in verse 4, it is a, a particular view on the world that elevates the interests of others. And by the time we get to verse 12 and 13, we are reminded that our salvation is to continue to be worked out in the mind of Christ. Don't get too caught up in all of the deep theology questions and miss that that theology is meant to be applied. There, there is no such thing biblically as an unapplied theology. All of the theological truth is meant to affect how you live your life. And so that is where Paul turns, and we begin with a pastor's encouragement. <coughs> Paul starts this little section, this uh, rejoinder back to the main argument, by reminding his recipients of this letter that, that they're doing well right? My beloved, as you've always obeyed, right? You did well in the past, so now, not only in my presence, but also more in my absence. It's that time of year again where you're at the end of school, and if you're a parent of a child who's like, they've been running out of steam for months, it's this type of speech you have to get. You've done a good job. Don't give up, right? Summer's a coming. You can do it. We have to finish. You can't just quit on fourth grade. You've got to finish that thing out. We've all been there. And Paul is doing that with the Philippian believers. It, it, it's worth reminding you, it's been a little while at this point, that Paul knows these people and he knows them well. He spent a significant amount of time in Philippi, getting the church off the ground. He, he is, in many ways, their spiritual father. He's been with them. He's been guiding them. And so this isn't just an empty term of endearment. He cares for this group of people and wants and longs for them to keep growing in their faith. And so he comes alongside and he encourages them. You've been doing well, don't give up. You've got to finish. Push on. Now, from my perspective, when I go to bridge the, the, the text to our context, right, this ancient world that we have in Paul to you and I sitting here in a church this morning, I get the great joy as a pastor to echo this type of sentiment. To look at you as Headwaters Church, not as the church at Philippi, and tell you, you've done well. Keep going. In this context, and we'll tease it out a little bit more here in just a moment, but what Paul has in view particularly is not just the big, big, broad idea of sanctification, but more specifically, he's thinking about how you as Christians interact with each other. How does the body of Christ behave 
in its own internal relationships. And again, I can say as a pastor with great delight and joy, as we look over the last few years, the opportunities for division are ample. And, and you could have, uh, many times, dug your heels in on things that, that we maybe have not done well here as a church, or maybe one of your uh, friends within this congregation has disagreed with you on this or on that issue, and you could have, right, died on that hill, and many have. Sadly, sadly, is it not? We've seen this all too frequently. Christians elevating things that they should not have to the point of a division of fellowship. And I just want to look at you and encourage you and say, thank you. You've done well. You've not allowed all of the potential divisive things to rise to the level of division that has happened in the rest of the world. That is a mark of the indwelling spirit in you. Keep going. He moves on from this encouragement to a believer's responsibility. And here we have three parts. First, the believer's attitude. The necessities of our English translation leave a lot to be desired here because in the Greek, you're allowed to, to kind of reorder things to bring what's important to the front of the line. So the end of the clause of verse 12 that our English translation reads, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, in the Greek, if we were to transliterate it, would read something along the lines of, with fear and trembling your salvation work out. And what Paul is emphasizing here is that the important aspect of this command is your attitude. The attitude with which you pursue your sanctification is the most important thing. Don't fool yourself that if you give a good, nice veneer of being at peace with others that you've done the work. It is more what is motivating and what is underneath. It is the attitude that is hiding beyond the view of many others that Paul has in mind here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. These two words, fear and trembling, evoke uh, and frequently are used in the Bible to remind us of our awe and submission to God. There is a godly fear not fear in the sense of, oh no, I've done something wrong and God's going to smite me or be angry at me. No, 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 the, the blood of Christ has covered that entirely. It is a good and appropriate fear for the holiness of God. And that fear is so strong, so deeply ingrained that it produces a physiological response, right? Trembling. You ever been so scared your knees were knocking together, right? You, could, you couldn't control your physical body. That is the type of awe and humility that you are to bring to your own sanctification. A proper understanding of who God is. And so again, if we broaden beyond just these couple verses and look at the context in Philippians 2, 
we see that the call to do nothing out of selfish ambition, the call to live humble lives, the call to look to the interests of others, if we expand into our text for next week, the call to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that call has its roots in a humble understanding of God. The ability to live out those types of commands requires a proper, humble fear of God. You can't do it any other way. Because we are pride monsters, right? That, that's just what we are. We love us a little me. Like we just we think we're just the greatest. And it's hard for us to get over ourselves until you go and stand next to the throne of God. Where there is no place for pride. Try. You just go ahead and try to sing the songs that you just sang and be like, yeah, but I'm really great too. You know, like, how could I hold my pride anywhere near me if I am close to Christ? If I am close to God, my pride has no place here. It has been thoroughly removed. Me next to God is a humble reality. It is a compare and contrast that helps me realize who I am. I have no pride. I have nothing to offer. You bringing your pride to the throne of God is like bringing your macaroni art to the Louvre, right? You're like, look what I made. You're like, Sorry, buddy, that doesn't cut it here. You're not even close to on the same level. Church, you need a humble awe of God if you want to fight against your own pride. If you want to grow in your own sanctification, if you want to Put your own opinion lower on the scale to, in order to elevate Christian unity. It will require that you have a proper fear of God. One commentator wrote, There is a fear of God of which we know all too little and of which we lose at our peril. A godly fear that grows out of a recognition of our weakness and, the, uh, and of the power of our temptation. This is a filial dread of offending God. Second thing that this believer's responsibility shows us is an audience. And again, we have a lost in translation moment here. Our English is clunky. English is clunky. Let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. If you've ever, right, I have young kids, you're trying to teach them how to read, and you're like, well, here's the rule, except for, you know, all of these times when those letters don't behave that way. I don't know why. I can't explain it to you. I have no understanding of this. No one does. Don't worry about it. Just keep going. Just pretend. We're all pretending. <laughs> just a bunch of imposters. Anyhow, English is clunky. And what we have here is a, a loss of understanding that this command and the audience is all plural. So the work out is in a plural form. The your in this context is a second person, right? It's, it's a plural pronoun. 
You, it's like y'all. Work out y'all's salvation. And the context shows us that this is really where Paul is trying to hammer things out. So if you just jump around to chapter 1, verse 27, we see this working out of your life to be worthy of the gospel. And at the end, how are you to do that? With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a together thing. Chapter 2, verse 2, you complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is a, a command to the body of Christ. We see in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, right? That's a together command. Every aspect of what is going on here is communal. So when Paul tells you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you should have this type of gathering in mind. How do I work out my own opinion in context of my Christian church? And that makes it much harder, does it not? The call to holiness seems more manageable when it's just me. If it's just me, I can account for my own foolishness and failures, and I can deal with that and try to work on that. But when I have to account for yours, and not only yours, but everyone else's in the church, I don't know. It feels like too much. I don't think, I can't do it. I can't do it. Because I'm willing to forgive me my own failures, but I don't know if I'm willing to forgive you yours. That's, that's a, a tall bar there, Paul. I don't think I can overcome that. The sanctification that we are to work out is done within the body of Christ together. Which means we have to ask ourselves the rhetorical question, and I know I just told you you've done well. However, that is a very broad thing. I don't want to let you off the hook if you shouldn't be let off the hook, and I'll let the Spirit of the God, uh, your indwelling Savior, work that one out for you. How are you doing on this? What do your relationships with other believers look like? Is it marked by a lack of selfish ambition and humility, of elevating their interests and lowering yours, of not grumbling and complaining? Or are your relationships with other believers marked by lines in the sand and elevated pride? I can't answer for you. I can answer for this church, and as a whole, you do so well. But as an individual, if you're feeling convicted, don't ignore that. Don't hide behind the encouragement of the whole. Allow the Spirit to convict where it needs to convict. Are you, and again, within the context of what's happening in Philippians chapter 2, are you a reflection of the selfless attitude of Christ towards each other? Number three, or letter C at this point, a believer's responsibility comes with an assignment. So we've had an attitude right? It's fear and trembling that is the highest elevation here, and, and we're kind of lost in the translation, told that that is something to do together, but there's actually a command within this. 
What are you to do? Work out your salvation. In many ways, this is an extension of the overarching imperative of this section of the book, which is in chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's another way of saying the same thing. Work out your salvation. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're talking about the same type of imperative here. You are to match your behavior to your belief. Those two things should line up. You are to continue in our verses this morning in obedience, right? Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've been obeying, keep obeying. And the language here, again, ties us back to what Paul has just been saying because he uses the same word for the Philippians' obedience that he used for Christ's willingness, his obedience to go to the cross. That is the obedience you are to have, Christians. The obedience of Christ. The humble, selfless obedience that leads our Savior to a cross is to be reflected in you and I. You are to be a humble, Christ-like Christian. So if we were to sum up this second point here, believers are called to humbly grow in holiness together. Christians, you and I, those who have been saved by the grace of God. And I just want to pause for a moment and let you know, if you're here today and you have not been received and you've not received the grace of God through faith, you've not placed your trust and obedience in the person of Christ, then none of this is imposed on you. You aren't called to this kind of obedience because the Christian ethic is built on the Christian faith. But if you have then you are a believer who's called to humbly grow in holiness together. It is an uphill fight as our world is very good at division. Eugene Peterson has a great line on this. It is this long obedience in the same direction which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. That is this call, right? A long obedience in the same direction. You've been doing it. Keep going. Now, let me stop right here and say, if I just preached on this verse and our sermon ended at this point, that would be really frustrating. Because everything that I have laid out for you to this point, except for that brief little introduction teasing what I'm about to say, has been a spiritual version of a self-help book. Right? You need to have the selfless attitude of Christ. Get out there, right? It's like a little league dad. Go take some cuts, son. You're like, just go try. I, I don't, how? How am I to do that? There is nothing that is native to me that is selfless. I, how am I supposed to look to the interests of others? How am I to do everything 
without grumbling or complaining. Everything? All of it. That seems like a lot. Probably too much. How? How in the world could that possibly be? If, if the image that kept coming back to me is you at the, at the spiritual gym, right? You're, you're sitting down, you're getting ready to, to squat your weight, and Paul comes along, and he just keeps putting more weight on the bar. And you're like, what are you doing? And he's like, all right, and he puts on way more than you know you could lift. And he's like, all right, give me 10 reps. And you go, I can't do that. How would I? What are you thinking, Paul? I can't lift that. That is a burden that is way too great for me to ever be able to lift. Which brings us to the glories of verse 13. Because you are asked to lift an insurmountable amount of weight, but you are not asked to do so on your own. It is not on the back of your willpower that you are called to holiness. Church, if you're trying to earn holiness through your own determination, through the right habits and skills, you will fall short and you are drastically misunderstanding the work of Christ in your life. You're not on your own. Verse 13 for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you. Now, I know there is a tension in these two verses, and we're going to have to sit in that tension. Because you can go in either direction too far. The answer to how you grow in holiness is not let go and let God. The answer to how you grow in holiness is not I've got this. And the answer is not even I'm going to work as hard as I can until I fail and then God will take over. All three are unsatisfactory and unbiblical. The answer to how you grow in holiness is that your holiness is God-sustained and Spirit-empowered beginning to end. You do not take one step on the path of holiness apart from God. You cannot. It is our God's promise at this point. We shift away from what we are called to do to what God promises to work. And we can miss this in either direction. You can overemphasize verse 12 and talk all about your ability. Or you can overemphasize verse 13 and excuse your responsibility. And neither one is appropriate. You have to sit in the tension. Yes, I am called to do this. Yes, it is God who is working within me. The tension is not meant to be resolved. Holiness is commanded and God empowers. This combination in verse 12 and verse 13 of our pursuit of holiness and God's promise of empowerment is exactly the peculiarity that you need to go about earning, growing, earning is the wrong word, to go about fighting through this call to obedience. 
You can't do it on your own. Don't try. Every command from the Bible, all of it, is any God-imposed expectation on the life of a Christian is given to a person who has the Spirit and dwelling within them. Or in other words, we cannot perfect in our power what could only be purchased by God's power. Justification is purchased by God. Sanctification is empowered by God. Christ earned righteousness by perfectly obeying the law, and we are given that righteousness. And so we pursue holy living, not to earn favor with God, not to give social credibility to Christianity. We pursue holy living to bring glory to God, knowing that if and when we fall short, the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ will catch us before we hit bottom. I no longer live in fear that if I fall short of the law, the wrath of God will rightly be poured out on me. Why? Because the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for me. And the righteousness of Christ was given to me. So now I get to pursue holiness, empowered by His Spirit, without the danger of my falling short resulting in my damnation. The fact that God is working in you does not negate your call to obedience. It enables it. In Christ, you are freed from the burden of earning favor with God. And this enables you to pursue holy behavior for God's glory and not your benefit. So God is with you on this endeavor to sanctification. Our journey, again, don't forget that this is a, a plural, this is for the church thing here. Our journey to sanctification as a church and as individuals is a working out of what God has already worked within us. We are bringing to the surface through the power of the Spirit what the indwelling Spirit brings to our lives. We work because God works. I wrestled with how to illustrate this for you, and I know that... Uh, what I've chosen is very particular to me. So that's, I, I was just, the, it was the best thing I could come up with. So if you will indulge me for a moment, think about what goes into a sermon. I know this probably isn't a part of most of your lives, although we have an inordinate, comparatively to most churches, there's an inordinate number of people who teach here. And so many of you probably do sit and wrestle with this type of tension. And if you don't, try to come with me just for a moment and, and sit in the task. Every time I go to preach, I sit down with my Bible and I open up the text to what I'm supposed to say and inevitably there is some feeling of a deep pit of dread that I can't do this. I don't have anything to offer to this. And the reason for the impossibility of the task of preaching is, is at least twofold. First, I am sinful. I'm woefully sinful. And so my ability to accurately see who God has revealed himself to be in the word of God is plagued by my sin. 
I see things wrong all the time. I miss it. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I, I'm, I'm a pride monster. When I should see God, instead I see me. And I bring that to my text every time, every week. But that's only one half of my giant problem. The other half is that God is an infinite holy God and so far beyond my reach, how could I possibly capture in finite words an infinite God? I am first weighed down by my sin and second, when I try to reach up, try to get through the burden of the own weight of my sin, I realize I can't reach God. God is so far beyond what any words I could possibly say. I have no chance. This is an impossible task. What in the world? I need a miracle every time I step into this pulpit. This is a task akin to standing under a waterfall and asking it to go back up. That doesn't happen apart from the miraculous. So what do you do? I'm standing here, my Bible open to you this morning, saying, this is the word of the Lord. I don't take that lightly. How do we get to this point? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Using a pew Bible, page 952. First Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is Paul's own description of his preaching to the Corinthians. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in, love the combination of words, in fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Church, every time I stand here to say to you, thus saith the Lord, I do so in complete dependence on God. For a sermon to accomplish what it needs to do, it must be adorned with the overwhelming presence and work of God far beyond anything that I put into this. God must bridge the gap between my sinful incapability and His infinites for the sermon to be any way accurate. For it to be what it needs to be, I have to rely on Him to bring about the miraculous. And so, 
a giant portion of my sermon preparation is spent in prayerful dependence on God to bring about what I can't. To recognize I have, I have nothing to offer to this. God, I beg of you, will you, like what happens in Ezekiel with the valley of dry bones, will you bring your animating breath to what is dead and bring somehow these inadequate words, life? I can't do it. I have nothing innate within me that can produce what needs to happen. And so I spend all of my time, not all, a giant portion of my time in, in prayerful study. Now, it doesn't mean I don't work. God has to bridge the gap. I can't do it. It's impossible without Him. And so I need to start with humility and recognize that, God, will you please make the sermon something that I can't do on my I can't do it. And yet, I spend hours every week reading and preparing and thinking and trying to illustrate and trying to, to shape the words in the right way prayerfully depending on God to fix what is broken within me and to somehow adequately represent himself in this finite language. I read and I labor and I pray and I practice in a desperate attempt to help our people, this church, accurately see the living God in my dead and empty words. Week after week, if I step into this pulpit, it is done so in relying on God and a miracle. Famous story about this, Charles Spurgeon is said to have ascended, there were 13 steps on the way up to his pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And 13 times on every step, as he ascended to the pulpit, he would tell himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that is from probably the most gifted preacher who has ever spoken our language. Did so in complete dependence on God to work a miracle. Church, that is the same thing that happens with your sanctification. You cannot do it on your own. It is the same task. It is too great for me and my ability to accomplish. I have no chance but I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that God has empowered and worked within me to grow. If I want to grow in my holiness, if you long and desire to be more Christ-like in your life, begin with humble and prayerful dependence on God and then work your butt off. Work as hard as you possibly can empowered by the Spirit to grow in your own holiness. That is the exact tension we have in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation, church, for it's God who works in you. That doesn't give you, you're not off the hook. You've got to work at this. And you have to depend on God. It is both and. It's the exact same dynamic that I face every week I teach the Bible. I go, God, I need you to do something that I can't do on my own. 
I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can, and I'm going to ask and plead and humbly go before you to plead that you will bring to life what is dead. That is our call in sanctification, church. Don't, don't push this off. Oh, God, God will do it when God's ready. And don't think that you can accomplish it on your own. It is always both and. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you. Now, you'll notice there are three things that change here. As God works, there are three things that change. First, the indwelling spirit changes your desires. Second, the indwelling spirit changes your behavior. And third, the indwelling spirit changes your motivation. He changes your desires. For it's God who works in you, first, to will. There's a change of desire. What you want is shaped and formed and molded by the indwelling spirit. What is natural and native to you is selfishness and pride and vain glory. Yet, the indwelling spirit comes along and you have what? Not selfish ambition, but humility. Not grumbling and complaining, but shining lights in this dark world, holding fast to the word of life. The indwelling spirit changes your heart of flesh into a heart of stone. So first, he changes your desires. Second, he changes your behavior. This is not merely abstract, right? It gets down to what you actually do. He changes both to will and to work. You can see this quite clearly in Colossians chapter 3. If you have just, just turn a couple pages to your right in your Bible. Now it's important to know that when the, uh, the Bible talks about your heart, right? The, the language that you've been given from a heart of stone, you've been given a heart of flesh. The heart in, in the Hebrew mind is far more uh, encompassing than what we tend to think of it. For us, the heart is the center of your emotions, right? You, it's where you feel. In the Hebrew, the heart is far, it includes your mind, includes your emotions, includes your will. It's a whole person. So when God, through the Spirit, changes your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that is your emotion, but that is also your thinking. It is also your desires. And that is what we see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth christ changes where your mind wants to be and then what happens for you've died your life is hidden with christ in god okay that's a description of salvation then what verse 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you he goes on to a bunch of lists a bunch of things verse 12 put on then as god's chosen and holy ones he goes on to list a bunch of righteous things god working within you changes your behavior he reshapes and forms he renews your mind and through that renewed mind comes renewed behavior I don't know if you've had the experience as an adult of looking at some of the things you used to eat as a child, right? And, and you look at that cotton candy in a different way, like, I, I just, I don't, right? 
I couldn't stomach it if I tried. That is what happens in your spiritual life as well. You have renewed desires and behavior. The Spirit grows you. And then finally, the indwelling Spirit changes your motivation. Right? It ends. God is in you, changed both to will and to work. Why? For His good pleasure. The end of your work is no longer your own glory. I'm not chasing after making a name for me. In a stunning turn of events, the end goal of your life matches the exact end goal of the life of Christ that we just saw. Christ did all of these incredible, humbling things, becoming obedient, taking on the form of humanity, being led to the cross, and at the name of Jesus, He's been elevated, and at the end of all of that, in verse 11, why? To the glory of God the Father. And you are called to humble holiness in your life. Why? To God's good pleasure. The life of a Christian is aimed at the exact same target as the life of Christ, the glory of God. My pursuit of holiness is not for me, though it will benefit you. Your pursuit of holiness is aimed at the target of God's glory. And so, church, when we look at these two verses as a whole, we find that we are called to live lives of humble holiness and we are empowered by God in that pursuit. So go and rely on Him as you become like.